Glad to be with you guys this morning. A few years ago, I was putting together this uh, this little cubby uh, thing in our son Roman's room. It's one of those things where it's like a about it's like a square. And it's got a few pieces of wood and it's got like these square holes where you put cubbies in. And so uh, at this point, if you've ever ordered like a bookshelf or a desk from various places online, after you do it a few times, it's pretty much always the same parts and the same order and the same procedure. And so I take this uh, book or this little this little shelf thing out, and uh, obviously I don't read the instructions because who would do that? And I start putting it together. Now it's not super complicated. It's only about I don't know 20 25 ish minutes worth of work. And so I start putting this this little cubby thing together, and uh, I get to the end where I put the middle part, the side parts, and all I got to do is put the top and the bottom. And so I go to put the top piece on. I mean, it's, just, it's like a square, but, you know, so to put the top piece on. And I'm trying to screw in, like, the screws on the edge, but they're, like, going at an angle. They're not going straight down. And so I'm, like, so I try to get a hammer to, like, get them in, and they're not, and they're not fully going in there. Um, and then I get Christina to come in, and she's like, I don't know what you did. And I'm like, well, I don't know what I did either. And so I finally look at the instructions and find this little cubby thing is not actually a square. It's like the top and the bottom are actually a little bit longer. And so I had to take apart the entire thing to put the right sides on the right side so this dumb little cubby thing would be put together, okay? Now, uh, as my, in my frustration all these things, what I found is that if I had simply just read the instructions and followed what I was supposed to do, then things would have gone a lot smoother and they would have gone a lot quicker. But instead, I tried to do it my own way, do my, the way I wanted to have it be done, and it didn't work. And I share that story because this morning we're continuing our time in the book of Exodus in Exodus chapter 4. And we're going to see that what often happens is that when we, when we obey, when we follow God, what he has called us to do, uh, things typically go better than when we try to do them in our own effort. And so if you have a Bible today, we'll be in Exodus chapter 4. If you don't, there's a black one around you. You can read along with us. And if you do not own a Bible, uh, you can take one of those black ones home. It is our gift to you. We're in Exodus chapter 4. Exodus uh, is the story of God rescuing the Israelite people out of Egypt uh, to bring them into a land that God had prepared for them from which the Messiah of the whole world would come. What we've seen so far is that the Israelites were enslaved, um, they were killed, they were beaten, a lot of horrific things were happening to them, and they cry out to God, they pray to God, and God is going to rescue them. Last week, we saw that God calls Moses, he meets Moses in the wilderness, what we call the burning bush, however, we saw that the bush was not actually burning, it was on fire, but it wasn't consumed. And so he calls Moses, God calls Moses, says, I want you to go back to Israel from which he had fled 40 years earlier to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. Now, Moses, understandably, is thinking, uh, I can't do this, right? And if you're, this is your first time reading the story, if you're not familiar with the story of Exodus, Moses at this point is not someone you would think God would use, right? He is old. Uh, he has been rejected by the Israelites and the Egyptians. He's poor. He lives in a far off land. And yet God meets him and says, I want to use you. And so Exodus chapter 4 continues what happened in chapter 3, where God is calling Moses to lead the people to go back to Israel. And Moses is kind of saying, well, no, surely, surely it's not me that you want, it's somebody else. And so it's kind of this conversation that we pick up uh, in, in chapter 4, starting in verse 1, after Moses is, is after God has told Moses, no, you're going to do this, and you guys are going to essentially be successful. It says this, Moses answered, what if they won't believe me, they being the Israelites? What if they won't believe me and will not obey me, but say, the Lord did not appear to you? The Lord asked him, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. Throw it on the ground, he said. So Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. The Lord told Moses, stretch out your hand and grab it by the tail. 
So he stretched out his hand, caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. This will take place, he continued, so that they will believe that the Lord, the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. So again, Moses is concerned that the Israelite elders and leaders, when he comes back and says, hey, God told me to come rescue you and, and we need to do this, they're going to look at them and be like, who are you? And no, he did not. And so God is going to give Moses three signs to first present to the uh, leaders of Israel to say, no, this is legit. What I'm doing is actually from God. The first is the staff throwing it on the ground. It becomes a snake. And then Moses does what any of us would have done in that situation. He ran, right? He ran. Eventually comes back. He grabs the snake by the tail and it comes a staff. This is uh, the first of many instances that we will see where Moses' staff is used uh, by the power of God to, do, to display his glory and his authority. And so this is the first sign he says to display. Here's the second sign, verse 6. In addition, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. So he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, his hand was diseased, resembling snow. Put your hand back inside your cloak, he said. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, it had become like the rest of his skin. If they will not believe you and will not respond to the evidence of the first time, may they believe in the evidence of the second sign. So the second sign is some sort of infectious disease. Uh, some translations have it as this one, is a disease resembling snow. Uh, some would say leprosy. There's some sort of skin disease. We're not exactly sure what it was. Uh, the display that God can heal diseases and take them away. Now, this was actually a very intense sign. See, in the ancient world, especially with these infectious skin diseases, they were essentially a death sentence. So if you got one of these things, you would be excommunicated from your community. They had essentially outcast community where people with skin diseases and various illnesses would go and live the rest of their lives outcast from society. Uh, we even see this in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we see the people of Israel doing the same thing, outcasting their own people who have diseases like this. I think what's interesting, as a side note, um, hopefully one of the things that we have learned from 2020 and COVID, that maybe it will give us more sympathy in reading these passages, because what did we do when COVID started? We all ran and hid, right? We all hid, right? And in this culture, there was no cure. There was no mask. There was no sanitation. There was no vaccines. If you got this, it was the end. And so this was a significant sign because this shows that the God of Israel can cure a disease that nobody else or no other gods could cure. This was powerful. This would have evoked worship and sacrifices to say this God is in control. So Moses says, God says to Moses, here's the second sign, which would have been tremendous. And then here's the third sign, the last one, verse 9. And if they don't even believe these two signs or listen to what you say, take some water from the Nile, pour it on dry ground. The water you take from the Nile will become blood on the ground. So this is the foreshadowing of what we're going to see is actually the first plague uh, that the Israelites or that God has against the Egyptians. What's lo logically, what's probably happening here is that each of these signs is greater than the last. So a snake from a staff, that's pretty crazy. A God that could heal a disease that no one else could heal, that's pretty crazy. And then the significance of being able to be in control or over the Nile would have been a massive deal to the Egyptians and the Israelites and anyone else who lived in that area. Uh, see, the, the Nile was viewed as a source of the gods and in some ways a god itself. And so if the god of Israel can control the Nile, can, can turn it into blood, this was a big deal. You see, at this part of human history, uh, the Egyptian or the Egypt was the largest nation that had ever existed 
because of the Nile. Uh, the Nile brought all the soil into the various river basins so that the, the Egyptians could flourish and have food and, and have all their power. It was a source of life. In fact, if you study Near Eastern, uh, ancient Near Eastern uh, history, you will find that all of the major religious festivals and holidays and sacrifices were on track with the various floodings of the Nile River. It all had to be, it was all coupled with the Nile. Essentially, the Nile was a source of the gods, and so Moses is here demonstrating that God is over, the God of Israel is over everything. Now, again, I just want to take a second and point out something. As we read this story, especially if you're kind of coming into this and kind of trying to forget everything you've heard about the Exodus story before this time, you have Moses with all of his inadequacies and all of his failures, right? He didn't live up to his potential as a, uh, as a royalty in Egypt. He was rejected by his own people, the Israelites, when he tried to stand up for them. He lives into a far country. He settles down there. He's no longer have any wealth. In fact, he doesn't, as we saw last week, he doesn't even own his own sheep. He's a shepherd for his father-in-law's sheep. He is not at all what we thought he would be. He has lost all of his power and prestige. And by the way, as we're going to find out, he's very old at this point. And yet what we see is that God is going to use Moses to lead the overflow, or the overthrow rather, of the largest empire in human history. And so I just want to make this point as, for a second as we look at this text here this morning. Well, here's what we need to know. That God's power throws, flows through obedience rooted in faith. God's power in your life, in my life, in the life of our world flows through obedience rooted in faith. And, pay, and faith, right? It's not about Moses and his ability or lack of ability, which is causing Moses to tell God, no, surely you should find someone else. Surely I can't do this because Moses is thinking what all of us think, that it's about us. And it's not about him. It's not about the power of Moses, but it's about the power of God, right? These signs are God's power displayed through Moses. It's not Moses being awesome and doing all these things and God's like, ooh, that's a good idea. Ooh, that's a good sign. No, it's God's power through Moses. It's not about the power of Moses, but the power of God. What we see throughout the book of Exodus, and particularly in this text this morning, is that God's power flows. If I can say that word, at some point I'll say this word, right? God's power flows through obedience rooted in faith, not in effort, not in your accolades, not in you trying really hard, but simply following and trusting in God. That is when we see God's power display. And that's when we see it displayed in Moses and in the Israelites. And so verse 10, in response to this power, again, Moses still thinks it's about him and his lack of ability. He responds by saying this, after all these amazing things that just happened, but Moses replied to the Lord, please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, either in the past or recently, or since you have been speaking to your servant, because my mouth and my tongue are sluggish. So here he's giving another reason. Now, as a side note, what's interesting is we have to ask, does Moses actually have a speech problem, right? He says he has a speech problem here, but does he actually have a speech problem? Because the thing is, when you read the rest of the story of Exodus, uh, you see that Moses does the talking pretty much all of the time. Aaron, his brother, helps out a little bit, but it's mostly Moses. And we actually have no indication as we read these texts when he's speaking to Pharaoh or leading the Israelites that he had a problem speaking. 
right? And so some people say, well, maybe he had a stuttering problem. Uh, some will say, well, maybe he's afraid of confronting Pharaoh because he hasn't been in Egypt for 40 years, and so his Egyptian isn't very good. Or what could actually be happening is what is known as a ritual protest, which was very common in, in ancient Near Eastern culture, where essentially when someone gave you an, an, a, a great assignment, you would kind of talk about all the reasons why you shouldn't do it, even if you should do it. So we actually see a lot of examples um, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So for example, I'll just say two real brief. Uh, Saul, who ended up being the first king of Israel, when God calls him, he says he comes from a, basically his family was a family of nobodies, which wasn't true, right? His family was actually well-respected in Israel. Uh, we see David, King David, who was going to be king eventually after uh, Saul. At this point, David had been a mighty warrior, and he goes to God and says that he's a nobody, when in fact he was well-known. In fact, even in the New Testament, the apostle Paul, who was a leader, church planter, was in chained uh, for spreading the gospel at multiple points, says that he is the lowest of the low when it comes to followers of Jesus. What could be happening here is perhaps he has a speech problem, or perhaps he's just simply saying, no, I can't do this, not me. Uh, maybe think of it like this. Like think of it if you're in a situation where maybe you go out to dinner or you have a friend that buys or provides something for you that you desperately need, but you feel bad accepting, right? At first you'll say no, like don't do it, right? Because you feel like you don't deserve it. But eventually you might accept the gift. That's kind of perhaps what's happening here, that Moses is simply saying, it's not that he can't speak, but he's saying, no, you can't choose me, regardless of if he has a speech problem or not, or maybe he's just trying to say, trying to be humble. Uh, here's what the Lord responds to him in verse 11. He says, the Lord said to him, <clears throat> who placed a mouth on humans? Who makes a person mute or deaf, seeing or blind? <clears throat> Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and I will teach you what to say. Moses said, please, Lord, send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses and he said, isn't Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well, and also he is on his way to meet you. He will rejoice when he sees you. You will speak with him and tell him what to say. I will help both of you, I will help both you and him to speak and will teach you both what to do. He will speak to the people for you. He will serve as a mouth for you, and you will serve as God to him. Take this staff in your hand that perform the sign. So basically what's happening here is whatever was happening beforehand, Moses is finally simply outright, outright protesting God and saying, I am not going to do this. Now, we do see that God is going to use Aaron to help communicate uh, to the Israelites. And at one point, eventually, Aaron's going to lead the priesthood for the Israelites later on. Uh, so he said, if you're not going to do this, I'm going to send your brother to help you. But again, you are going to do this. This is what's going to happen. Now, what's, I think what's maybe somewhat ironic here is that Moses is recognizing that he is speaking to a very powerful God, right? The God of all the earth. If anything, all these signs show that this God is someone you should take seriously, right? It's not about Moses' power, but what God is going to do through Moses, right? And so it seems kind of ironic that he has clearly been shown that it's not about him, it's about God, and yet he's still trying to say, you somebody else, right? He's still thinking that it's about him. And so what we see here, especially with this idea that God's power uh, flows through obedience rooted in faith, what this is showing us is that ultimately God's power is greater than our inadequacies. So for whatever reasons that we might have to say to God that, no, you God, you can't use me, or no, I can't do this because of all these things that have happened in my life or all these things that I've been through, we need to understand that, again, it's not about Moses, it's not about me, it's not about you, it's about God. And hear me, listen to this. Sometimes our inadequacies paralyze us. 
uh, and they are legit, if you could say. They are legit excuses, but they are still disobedience. So let me explain this a little bit. I think sometimes when we talk about being used by God, we automatically assume it's like sharing the gospel, like telling people about Jesus, which is true. That's part of being used by God. But also we know that God wants, all, wants us to help for human flourishing, that he gives us passions and desires. Sometimes God might be leading you to do something that you actually want to do, right? You actually want to improve your community or you want to serve in some way or you want to pursue some job opportunity that God actually wants you to do this and you want to do it, but yet you're stuck thinking about all the reasons why it shouldn't be you, right? You could say, well, maybe I don't have enough experience or I don't have enough wisdom or I don't have enough uh, influence or I don't have enough money. I don't have all of these things. Sometimes our excuses are legitimate, but they're still excuses and it is still disobedience if God is leading us and calling us and asks us to do something, which means, and hopefully this is good news for you and for me, that God does not need our competence. He doesn't need our competence. He needs our obedience. Again, it's not about you and what you're doing in your power. It's about obedience flowing through faith and God's power flowing through our obedience in faith, which means this. Here's what this means. That God will always use you in spite of you. He will always use you in spite of you, right? And now, now to be clear, this does not mean that we shouldn't work to improve and to improve our character and maybe improve some skills or some talents that we have. Uh, we should do those things, but even as we get better, Right At the end of the day, an all-powerful God of the universe is always using us, not because of us and how awesome we are, because of how awesome he is, and he's inviting us to follow him. It, it makes me think of this. So I've got a, our two-year-old son, Roman. He loves, anytime I'm trying to do something or fix something, he loves to do it with me. Now, I, I honestly, I feel bad for him because I am like the most unhandy person in the world. And so I'm like, son, I wish I could teach you how to do things, but I don't know how to do things. But when I attempt to do things, he's always there, like trying to follow me around. Like this summer, we had a, a ground level deck built on the side of our house. And, and so after it was finished, I took a hammer and was just kind of hammering in some of the nails that were still sticking up a little bit. And so he got this like plastic tool and he was like smacking the, smacking the wood or he, if he didn't have a tool with him, he had his hand. He was like, hammer, 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 hammer. It was awesome, right? Uh, we also, on Monday afternoon, I take the trash out. We have these two big bins. There's a green one and there's a blue one. And so Monday when I get home, I take the trash out. And Roman now has decided that he also loves taking the trash out. The only problem with this is our, our driveway is a little bit of a hill. And so I have to maneuver this little, this little plastic bin in between both of our cars down on the driveway and turn it, which isn't that big of a deal. But when you have a two-year-old that's like two feet tall trying to help, it makes it kind of annoying. So exactly, here's a picture of the other day. So this is Roman. Oh, thank you. Okay. Listen, side note real quick. I know we got a lot of young people in this church. So if you don't have kids yet, anytime someone shows you a picture of their kid, listen, even if the kid ain't cute, okay? You say, oh, there we go. So that's me and Roman, right? He loves it. Like, this isn't just like Roman smile. He, like, he's like this excited about it. And I'm like trying to grab this thing and I'm waddling down the driveway to get it down there. And then it, it's worse on Tuesdays when I have to bring it back because normally I would just turn around and push it up the hill. But Roman wants to help and he's not tall. So I got to waddle backwards and try to pull this thing up. Now here's the thing. Roman loves it. Is he helping me? 
No, just in case you're not sure, he is not helping me, okay? Not in any way. In fact, he's making it more work. But here's the thing. I actually enjoy this. Why? Because we get to do something together. Because it's fun and it's cute and we'll be able to talk about this as he gets older, different things that he can't do. But it's about us being together. That's what's important. And what we need to understand is that sometimes God is calling us to do things, not because we are qualified or because we're awesome, but he's inviting us into a relationship with him. He's inviting us to experience who he is. He's inviting us to lean on his power and his grace and his mercy and his wisdom. It's not about us. It's about him. It's not about our inadequacies and what we can or cannot do. It's about trusting in God and playing a part in his story as he invites us because he loves us, not because he needs us. I don't need my son to take the trash out, right? He invites us because he loves us to take a part of what he's doing so that we can learn and grow closer to him. That's what's happening here is God is calling Moses, even though Moses thinks, it's not, thinks he's not awesome, which is true because he's not awesome, but God is awesome. And he's calling Moses and he's calling you and I to take part in what he's doing. And so here's what happens next, verse 18, after God tells Moses to, to do these things and to go meet with his brother. It says, Then Moses went back to his, uh, his father-in-law Jethro and said to him, Please let me return to my relatives in Egypt uh, and see if they are still living. Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. Now in Midian, the Lord told Moses, and this is where he was living at the time with his father-in-law and his family in Midian. So he goes back to Midian, asks his father-in-law if he could leave. It says now in verse 19, now in Midian, the Lord told Moses, return to Egypt, for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons, put them on a donkey, and returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took God's staff in his hand. The Lord instructed Moses, when you go back to Egypt, make sure you do before Pharaoh all the wonders that I have put within your power. So he's going to do this in front of the Israelites to kind of gain their confidence. And then Moses and some of the elders are going to do these same signs in front of Pharaoh. So go before Pharaoh, uh, all the wonders that I have put within your power. But I will harden his heart so that he won't let the people go. Verse 22, and you will say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. I told you, let my son go so that he might worship me, but you refuse to let him go. Now, this is going to be a little bit interesting here. God here is talking about Moses and his son. And then this next part, he's transitioning to talking about Moses. Sorry, before God was talking about the Israelites, right now he's going to be transitioning to talk about Moses and Moses' the son. Because you're going to be like, what, what's happening here? So let me just read this again, verse 22. He's going to say, say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me, but you refuse to let him. Now God is talking to Moses about Moses' own son when he says this. Look, I'm about to kill your firstborn son. On the trip at an overnight campsite, it happened that the Lord confronted him and intended to put him to death. So Moses' son, Gershom, to put him to death. So Zipporah, which is Moses' wife, took a flint, cut off her son's foreskin, threw it at Moses' feet, and said, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So let him alone. At that time, she said, you are a bride, bridegroom of blood, referring to the circumcision. So this is all fine and dandy until what, what's happening here, right? So God's like rescuing them. He's gonna, and then this gets thrown in here. What in the world? Right? What's happening? Um, I mean, I'm going to try to explain this briefly as I can. I'm gonna, it's gonna be, just follow me for a couple minutes. This is going to be a little technical, but I think if we can understand somewhat what's happening here, it gives us a greater picture of understanding of what God is doing with Israel. And so when, when Moses is supposed to tell Pharaoh that Israel is God's firstborn son, it's significant in two ways. 
One, in that ancient culture, being firstborn carried a lot of blessings. In fact, you received a double inheritance for every, from all, all the other children. There was some prestige about it. Uh, and so we see that God is calling Israel to be God's own firstborn son, from which the Messiah would come. So God is going to bless Israel first, and then out of Israel, he's going to essentially, or eventually, through Jesus, bless the whole world. So God is Israel's firstborn son. And this is also, in a second way, significant to Pharaoh, because what this communicates when Moses tells us to Pharaoh is that the Israelites are not your people. They're enslaved by you, but you do not own them. They are actually God's people. And so you need to obviously let them go. Now, there's a lot of debate and confusion about these last couple of verses with Moses' son and circumcision and what is going on here. So let me just tell you what is clear. There's a lot of confusion, but let me just point out to the things that actually are clear. What's clear is that Gershom, which is Moses' son, who is, by the way, an adult at, by this point, um, is not circumcised. Now, not to be graphic, but circumcision involves cutting some foreskin off of a penis, right? So this is not like fun, especially if you're an adult male. Like this is not something that you typically want to volunteer yourself to do. Uh, this typically would happen right after you're, you were born. Now, why does this matter? Why does it matter? Well, the reason why it matters is because the Israel, God, uh, God is going to use uh, Moses to uh, be faithful to his covenant to the Israelites, but Israel, uh, Moses' own son, Gershom, does not have the sign of God's covenant himself. So how is it that Moses is going to lead the firstborn son, if you will, the firstborn, the Israelites, who are part of the covenant, when his own son isn't even part of the covenant? Now, we do know this, that the Israelites uh, were not the only culture to um, circumcise in the ancient, near, ancient world, uh, which is why Zipporah, which was not an Israelite, knew how to do this. However, it was something that God had called the Israelites to do as a sign to say that you are my chosen people. We see this in Genesis chapter 17. Here's how this starts. Uh, God is talking to Abraham way back in the beginning when God promised to, to bring a mighty nation out of him from which the Messiah of the world would come. And they were going to be God's covenant people. And this was going to be the sign that God had chosen this people. In verse 9 through 11, it says this in Genesis chapter 17. It says, God also said to Abraham, as for you and your offspring, after you throughout the generations are to keep my covenant. This is my covenant between, in, between me and you and your offspring after you, which you are to keep. Every one of your males must be circumcised. You must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you. So what happens here is that God himself is making a covenant with a people. Now, a covenant is not something we use a lot in our culture today, but essentially a covenant is a binding agreement that does not fade. It does not stop. Think, uh, ideally, of a wedding, right? Wedding vows or a covenant in sickness or in health, I am going to stick with you. Uh, and so a covenant is a big deal, and God covenants to say, I'm going to be with these people even when you're unfaithful. Even when you turn from me, I will still be faithful to you. So being a part of covenant is a big deal. Now, the question is, why is circumcision the thing that makes you be part of the covenant, right? Now, I anticipated, a lot of you were probably curious about it. I was curious about it. And so I spent a couple hours this week in scholarly effort to present to you the reasons why God chose circumcision, okay? So are you ready for this? After all of my study, here's what I found. Why did God choose, choose circumcision? I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> I, I don't know. Why is it that? Because here's the thing about circumcision, if we're being honest. It's bloody. Uh, it's uncomfortable. It's weird. It's kind of creepy, at least for our modern sensibilities, like this. Like, why is this the thing? I, 
I did not find a solid answer. We don't actually know. God could have chose a lot of things, but he chose this. But here's what we do know. Circumcision also reveals to us the penalty of sin. Right? It's a sign. Here's the thing. It's a sign of God's saving covenant with Israel because circumcision involves the shedding of blood, the cutting off and the shedding of blood. It shows us the seriousness and the weight that a holy and righteous and perfect God has with people who are not holy and righteous and perfect like he is. It shows us that God will not be manipulated. He will not indulge in sin and unholiness, uh, that this is a big deal. To be a part of God's covenant is a big deal. And what do we find? That if you are in God's covenant, both the Israelites are now for those of us that are followers of Jesus, there is grace, there is peace, there is mercy, there is forgiveness. We see this all throughout the Old Testament when the Israelites turn from God, but they are still in his covenant, so they receive the grace and mercy that they do not deserve. And yet if you and I are outside of God's covenant, then what awaits us is judgment and death. Ultimately, what awaits us is being cut off from God himself. And so all of that to say, what's happening here is that God is about to use Moses to bring about and to continue his covenantal promises with the people of Israel, but his own son, Moses' own son, is outside of the covenant, right? So this is a disastrous thing, and what we're supposed to imply from this text is that Moses should have known, right? Moses should have known that his son must be circumcised to be part of the Israelite covenant, and so again, what this means that God was going to kill uh, his son is that being outside of God's covenant is a dangerous place to be. And so the question for us this morning is this, are you outside of God's covenant? Right, that's the question. If inside God's covenant there's grace and mercy and love and forgiveness, outside their, uh, God's covenant is death and judgment and ultimately being cut off from God. The question then becomes, are you and I part of God's covenant? Or how do we become part of God's covenant if we're not? Now, just want to make, make us all happy here this morning. We've said this the past few weeks. I'm about to ask you a question, just a heads up, that you guys know the answer to. So, okay? So just, um, like we've seen the last few weeks, uh, that scripture is what? It's a unified story that leads to who? Thank you. And maybe there's some more oomph in that this morning because Scripture is a unified story that leads to Jesus. And we actually see echoes and pointings of Jesus even in Exodus chapter 4. You say, how is that possible? How does circumcision point us to Jesus? Well, I'm so glad you asked. I'm going to read you one more passage this morning. Second, or, uh, see, Colossians chapter 2, the apostle Paul is writing to a, a group of believers, and he's talking about following Jesus and not being trapped with cultural ideologies and missing out on who God is through Christ. And then he tells them this. Here's why you and I should follow Jesus. Second, or Colossians chapter 2. It says, for the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. So God himself is the God-man. Jesus coming on earth is God himself, God in flesh. And you have been filled by him, who is the head over every ruler and authority. Just like God is over Pharaoh, God is over every ruler and every authority. You were also circumcised in him with the circumcision not done with hands, by putting off the body of flesh in, a circum in the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. In other words, this is really good news if you're not quite sure about the circumcision thing, okay? 
It's not about being works. It's not about efforts being done by hand. In the coming of Jesus, circumcision was pointing to the covenant that would be fulfilled by Jesus. And what did Jesus do? Jesus was cut off from God in his bloody execution before his resurrection. He took the wrath of God. He defeated sin and darkness that we could not defeat. Took the wrath of God that we deserve. He was cut off from God in that moment on our behalf. I know this might be graphic, but you could say that Jesus was circumcised from God for us, for you, and for me. And so it's no longer about doing something that displays our co- being part of God's covenant. It's about following and trusting in Jesus, that Jesus does for us what we could not do for ourselves. The gospel is the good news of Christ. The gospel is that Christ shed his blood. Now Christ is our covenant, and that's the point, that Christ is our covenant. If you're not quite sure, if you're a part of God's covenant, the question is, what have you done with Jesus? See, the good news of the gospel is that it's not about you, and it's not about your effort, and it's not about your connections, and it's not about your education level, or your gender, or your ethnicity, or your socioeconomic status. It's not about any of those things. It's about what you've done for Jesus. That what, have, what, have you have, what have you done with Jesus? That God himself has come, lived the di- life that we could not live, died the death that we deserve, so that we can be entered and welcomed into God's covenant. Not because of us, because of him. That God is inviting you, maybe this isn't the best way to say it, but God is inviting you to take out the trash, okay? He's inviting you to take part in what he is doing. Christ is our covenant. And so the question of whether or not you are in, our, in, God's, in the covenant with God is what have you done with Christ? Have you been honest and said, God, I do not have this all figured out. I am not perfect. I need your grace. Or do you say, God, I, I don't really need you. I think I'm good enough on my own, right? Where do you stand with God? And ultimately, where do you stand with Jesus? Because here's the thing, right? Churches can be filled with people. They can be filled with people. Maybe not so many right now because of COVID. But churches can be filled with people with no mark of following Jesus, right? We can know Bible verses, and we can pray prayers, and we can sing songs. But the question is, are our lives and our hearts shaped after following Jesus? Because following Christ is not an intellectual exercise, It's not about knowing all of the theology and all of the questions and all the scripture. It's about are you allowing Jesus to change and shape your heart, which changes how we live, right? If you and I think our awesomeness impresses God, like that's just crazy. That The king of the universe would be impressed by us and our efforts, and yet he loves us in spite of those things. He invites us in spite of those things. It is not our awesomeness. That, gain, that, grain, that gains God's favor. It's not our effort that gains God's favor. None of these things impress God. It's Christ's work in us, that God is our covenant. Which means, if I could kind of wrap this up, what are we supposed to take away if it's about Jesus and what he has done? How do we experience that grace? How do we experience that power? Here's what I would say, that faithful obedience is greater than efforted obedience. Faithful, faithful obedience is greater than efforted obedience. And you say, Dylan, effort is not a word. And I would say, you're right. Efforted, listen, efforted is not a word in the same way that your efforts save you. Efforted is not a word in the same way that your awesomeness makes God love you more. Efforted is not a word in the sense of, I'm going to do all these things, and if I do all these things and have a high enough GPA and live in the right place and have the right connections, then God can use me. Again, sometimes, I think oftentimes, God is inviting us to do things that we actually want to do, but we just feel like it's not, like we just feel like there's all these reasons why we can't do it. The question then becomes, is is your life, is my life, marked by obedience rooted in faith, or is it marked by our effort? 
Because it's not about our effort. It's about being faithful and trusting and allowing God to do what only he could do, and that's following along on that journey. You see, Moses, again, he's using his excuses, his lack of awesomeness, his lack of ability to say, God, you can't use me. God, I cannot do this. But it's not about God. Or it's not about Moses. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about God with us. God with us. And so I think one of the things that's interesting is that when we talk about obedience and following Jesus, sometimes that can feel stuffy, right? Sometimes it can feel like, oh, I don't know about that. I don't know if I, I want to do it. I love this quote uh, by John Newton, who was a former slave, ki- slave ship captain in the Atlantic slave trade and then uh, became a pastor uh, and has an incredible life story. In fact, was a key player in the abolition of slavery in England in the late 1700s and 1800s and early 1800s. In one of his hymns, he wrote many hymns, he talks about this idea of following Jesus, even though it might seem like our desires are elsewhere. Here's what he says, and if you're a follower of Jesus, I think you can relate to this as you grow with him. Here's what he says in his, in his hymn. It says this. It says, our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. Our pleasure, right, our desires, and our quote-unquote duty, our obedience to Christ, though opposite before, uh, since we have seen his beauty and his grace and his mercy and his love, are joined to part no more. See, when you experience Jesus, when you taste his goodness, following Jesus does not become something you do out of obligation. It becomes something you do out of a response to the grace and mercy that he has shown you and shown me, even when we don't deserve it. And so again, faithful obedience is so much greater than your efforted obedience that cannot measure up anyway. And Christ is inviting us into a relationship of following and trusting in him. Even like Moses, when we have all these reasons why, God, it should not be us, God, we don't deserve your grace, I don't deserve to be forgiven, I I shouldn't be the one to do this thing, God is saying it's not about you, it's about me. And he's inviting us to join and follow him, to grow in our relationship with him and being faithful in what he has asked us to do than leaning in on our own effort. Faithful obedience is greater than efforted obedience.